0: Even a watch has its own uh, noise. But some of you will know that um, TikTok is also um, a world uh, popular, a world uh, famous, uh, used by uh, many millions of people, uh, an app uh, on the phone. People can post post videos and all kinds of things uh, on there. And uh, the most popular thing on uh, TikTok um, a year or so ago was a thing called main character energy. I don't know if you can believe this, but worldwide, 307 million people, 307.7 million people, uh, followed this hashtag, this label, main character energy. And it became, becomes a, a term used on social media more generally, not just on TikTok. And it refers to wanting to be the star of your own story, the center of attention, a way of understanding your life with you at the center. So it's what I need, it's what I want that becomes the main dominating thing. I take control of my own narrative. I reclaim the power. It's called main character energy. Today's culture is very much that, that the story is all about me. And Psalm 100 tells us something very different. It isn't all about you. You're not the master of your own destiny. The power does not belong in your hands. You're in the hands of God. It is all about him. I want to say something as we approach the sum about uh, grammar and before you groan, I'll get through it very quickly, um, indicatives and imperatives. You might remember them from school. So verbs can have different moods. Uh, an indicative is a statement. An imperative is a command. You can also have subjunctives and other things as well. Let me illustrate it by putting Swansea and win in the same sentence, in different sentences, OK? You can have the sentence, I wish Swansea would win. I wish they would win. They, they didn't win. They did, did they? Right. And you can say, Swansea might win. They could win. You might have said, let's assume they lost or they drew. You might say, if only Swansea had won. If only they'd got all three points, if only. Those are different moods of the verb. You can wish something, something can be conditional, if only this had happened, or might, or could, or maybe. But if you say, Swansea did win, that's a statement of fact. That is an indicative, Swansea one. It talks about not what you wish might be, not what you hope, not what would happen if something else happened, but it's definite. It's indicative, it's a statement. I suppose you could have a command using those two words as well. You could say, Swansea, win. I don't know if Rob's ever tried that. We haven't got the power, of course, to command anything like that to happen, but an imperative is a command. Do this. Usually there's an exclamation mark um, at the end. The sum mixes both of them, imperatives or statements, as well as commands. And it's very important that we get them in the right order. The statements, the, the facts, What is definite, the truths about God and the truths about ourselves, those things we must consider first before we move on to the realm of commands. And that's the way that the whole Bible moves. When you're in the great uh, epistles of the New Testament, Ephesians or Colossians, for example, Romans as well, you begin with statements, you begin with things that are. And then you move on to things that you are to do. And it's a vital principle that distinguishes the gospel from false religion. In much of false religion, you're never entirely sure. You're kept in the darkness of superstition and ifs and maybes or I hope. And it's a mark of false religion that the person says, well, I hope I may go to heaven. I can't be sure of it. It depends on what the priest says, or it depends on if I keep up my good behavior until the end of my life. It depends on somebody doing a ritual to me in church, but I hope I shall. True religion, the gospel, says, I know. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And it's dangerous for the Christian to dwell in the realms of speculation, or what might have been, or what could be, if only. And it's dangerous for the Christian to dwell only in the realm of commands, the imperatives. That would be a terrible burden to have, just to have law do this exclamation mark we must start with the things that we know are true statements of fact in the old testament the way that the uh, ten commandments are preceded by a statement about god who he is and what he has done is very striking god spoke All these words, this is in Exodus 20, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and so on. If you don't get the sequence right, you end up with being merely moral, merely good. These are the things that I must do. Do them and you will live. Mere morality. The trouble is that the do them and live principle is based on a pure hypothesis, and a hypothesis that isn't and can never be true. It's based on the supposition that I can do all those things, that I can obey the law inwardly and outwardly. I can do them and then I shall have everlasting life. That condemns us to failure, to a pointless quest, that's mere morality. And if you don't get the sequence right, if you don't start with the truths about God and what he has done for us, if you go just to commands, you end up a Pharisee. The kind of person who says, as we read in Luke uh, 18, Luke 18, and uh, it's verse 9, isn't it? The story of the uh, Pharisee and tax collector. Uh, So two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And you noticed how many I's there are in that prayer. I, I, I. It's such a self-centered prayer. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The other thing that we end up in, if we get the order wrong, is a kind of slavery. So we can be crushed by impossible burdens. If we don't start with God... If we start with ourselves, if we start with the things that we are supposed to be and supposed to do, if we start by trying to please our people, if we start merely with duty and expectations, we are crushed by impossible burdens. And putting self at the centre creates horrendous pressures, the pressures of self-image for the teenager and the person later in life. The pressures of having to conform in fashion or thought or culture to other people. To be uh, within the mainstream, that creates terrible pressures. It was never meant to be like this. We were not designed to be at the centre of our own universe. It creates an intolerable burden if we leave God out of the picture. (laughs) Well, this morning, we're going to think about the indicatives, the statements about God, where we need to start. And then, God willing, next Sunday morning, we'll think about the imperatives, the things that we're told to do. But remember, the imperatives come second. We start with the indicatives the statements, what is, what God is, and what God has done. Number one, the Lord, he is God. It's the first part of verse three. The Lord, he is God. Jehovah, the covenant God, he is Lord alone. So there's no other God besides him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the people of Israel are told, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then that's uh, repeated with an extra uh, helping, as it were, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here is Jehovah, the center, the source of being and life and truth and reality, who needs no one, who needs no thing outside himself to be perfectly fulfilled, perfectly happy. Jehovah, in fact, means I am who I am. I'm sufficient in and of myself. And therefore, when we are called to worship by the psalm, we do so on his terms. Uh, Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It is God who is the living, true God, the hearing God the speaking God, the God who fills heaven and earth. There's no room for any other God. There's no room for any other saviour. And all other religions are a groping after this true God. The truth is found in him and in Christ alone. There's the first statement, the Lord, he is God. And then secondly, he made us. He made us and we are his. Uh, Verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We're his in two senses. Creation, firstly. We are his because we belong to him as those that are made by him. In that sense, all human beings are in the same uh, situation. The Israelis and the Palestinians are equally created by God and equally, in a sense, belong to him. The people of Ukraine and the people of Russia are alike made in the image of God. It is God who made us and we are his. And Paul says that to the people um, in Athens who were uh, very religious and they liked to, to dabble in all kinds of different uh, worship of um, various gods. This is what he says uh, to them in Acts and um, chapter 17, uh, starting at verse 22. Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and that's the the big, I don't know if you've been to Athens or seen a postcard of Athens, it's the big uh, building, the classical Greek obviously, building on the top of the hill, the Areopagus. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So just in case there was a God that they hadn't yet discovered, but might be there, they thought they put an altar to that God as well, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. There we are. In a general sense, we are the offspring of God. Uh, King Charles lives and moves and has his being in God. Rishi Sunak lives and moves and has his being in God. Uh, We all do, whatever religion people claim or no religion at all, prominent atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, and so on, they live and move and have their being in God, because he is their creator, whether they choose to acknowledge it or not. And all therefore are accountable to him. And people know that, the Bible assures us that, in the conscience, there is that voice that makes us aware whatever we claim to be, whatever we do with the truth uh, in the Bible, yet there is a judge, and there is a judge to whom we must give account. We haven't made ourselves. We are made by the action and decision of another, of God, the creator. I cannot be just who I choose to be. You're not the masters of your own destiny. And even when you go your own way, and even when you indulge every lust and selfishness you possibly can, still, you're not the star of the show. Romans 1 tells us that even despite the terrible and horrendous lives of sin and depravity that men and women may live, it is only because God allows them to do so and he confirms them in their choices and so over it all and above it all and through it all god is still at the center everything comes back to god in the end almost an account to him he made us and we are his by virtue of creation but then uh, number three <coughs> not only that but we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Continuing there in verse three. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And here we enter a higher level again. We belong to him, not merely in a universal sense, the brothers uh, in mankind, but we belong to him in that special sense because he has redeemed us. He's made us his own, not simply by virtue of having formed us, but by virtue of the Son whom he loved, having been sent into the world and shed his blood to redeem us from sin. We are bought with a price. We belong to him twice over 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are his people. We are the sheep of his people. So there's a God who might justifiably have dwelt completely on his own, completely self-sufficiently choosing a to create the world, to create uh, a people and b choosing from within vast number of created peoples in all of human history choosing to make a special people for himself, drawn from all the nations, a God who desires in short, company and fellowship. And it's vital for our well-being as human beings that we find our identity and purpose in who we are in God's sight. It's vital that we allow ourselves to be defined not by human relationships, not by family relationships, whose son, whose daughter we are, etc. That can be a source of pride, but it can also be a source of shame. But we're not defined by human connections. Primarily, we are defined by who we are in relation to god and the thought that god has created us and knows us intimately that he holds our very breath in his hand and more than that the thought that god should send his own son to die for someone like me a sinner like me is the love of god That defines us. That's where our worth and value is as a human being. We're the sheep of his pasture. Jesus says, doesn't he, in John 10, that he is the good shepherd. He has my sheep, he says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And more than that, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. sheep believe me is not a flattering description if you, you don't have to walk very far in the countryside to see a sheep that's got into trouble a sheep that's got into some fix or other remember we walked just uh, down from where we live and across the river uh Finve, and then along sort of away from the darren uh, hill and we saw a, i presume it was a ram with quite some sort of curly horns and it had got itself stuck in a fence so badly that you couldn't work out how on earth it could be extricated. You'd have to almost lift up the ram and turn it a couple of times to get the horn out of the fence. Or obviously, I suppose the farmer who owned it could have uh, decided to cut uh, the fence. We are foolish and we stray. Uh, We know the right course, but we choose our own way. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, on his Son, the iniquity of us all. But in Christ, believing in him, we're the sheep of his pasture. And by and large, nothing else matters. By and large, that's where you have to start. Who am I? What am I? What am I doing? What am I for? What is my life about? God has made me, and in Christ, God gives me redemption, salvation, that I may be his chosen sheep, that I may be within his family, that I may know the presence of his rod and his staff to comfort and to protect me, and to know that whatever else anybody might think of me in my family or further afield. The love of God for me, person to person, that is the thing that is most precious and most meaningful, that God, that he should choose, that he should love, that he should speak to me, even to me. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. That's where you have to begin. Ask you this morning, are you a sheep of his pasture? And do you know that all your wanderings and your folly and your sin, the good shepherd had to lay down his life for those? That's what he did. There was no way we would remedy ourselves. There's no way the sheep can get itself untangled from that fence There's no way that we can deal with our sins unaided. A whole eternity, a millennia of good doing, millennia of church going would never atone for a single sin, a single act of envy or resentment, the things that we think are insignificant. Any sin can only be atoned for. It can only be made good and made right by one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus. And how thankful we are that it doesn't just atone for little sins as we think of them. It atones for a world of sin. It atones for sins of deepest dye, stains and pollution. All the things that have spoiled our lives and experience, all the things that continue to come out of us sinners that we are, the blood of Jesus, that one sacrifice alone, the good shepherd, is what he has done alone that deals with sin and guilt and separation. Number four, lastly, what are the facts, what are the indicatives, the fourth one? Verse five. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I think you'll know this um, already because Andrew uh, is a big fan of um, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. And you'll know the question is asked by the children uh, about Aslan. Uh, And they say, hearing that he's a lion, They say, is he safe? And the reply comes, no, he's not safe, but he's good. God is good. He's mighty, he's a terror to those who continue to resist him, but he is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Any other goodness in the world derives from him. He's the origin, the source of goodness. This is where we have to start. It's where the psalmist in Psalm 73 is becoming troubled by the way the world is. Why do good people suffer? Why do bad people seem not to suffer? Why do some people have it so easy and other people seem to struggle every single day? and it was beginning to oppress him. But he starts his sound by saying, surely God is good to Israel. And eventually, despite, he says, almost charging around like a bull in a china shop and uh, having thoughts that he was later uh, ashamed of, but when he comes into the presence of God, he comes to the sanctuary, he comes to the place where God is, to the stillness. And then he realises, because he goes back to the indicatives, the great facts, not his own feelings, not the way he understands the world, he goes back to the facts. God will judge the wicked because he is good. So that initial headline, the Lord is good, and then the subtext, the explanation, his steadfast love, which is uh, in Hebrew, hesed, it's his covenant love, the love that will not let me go, the love that is free and faithful and stronger than death, the love that many waters cannot quench, that love that keeps on and on and on and isn't dissuaded or deterred by anything, unconditional Love His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. We have a God then who created, who redeems, and a God who commits himself. That's what this word is about, his steadfast love. It's the love of commitment. And he invites us to rely utterly upon himself to put all our eggs, as it were, in that one basket of his trustworthiness and his commitment to us. Whether it's creation, it's all about him. Whether it's our identity, it's all about him. Whether it's salvation, it's all about him. Salvation is of the Lord. Whether it's the way the world is. You have to start with God. And if you don't, sooner or later, you will end up in a very dark place. Start with God, the God who is light, the God who is good. It's all about him. Paul says in Romans uh, 11, For of him, through him, to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen the order right then always in your own thinking start with God make it your business to see him and to know him first and everything else will come then from that shall we pray together heavenly father we we worship you that you have spoken in your word. You've left us, Lord, in no doubt as to who you are and what you have done. We praise you for all that we have read. We pray it may be for our comfort and for our help. And we pray that we may be sure uh, that Christ indeed has died for my sins, that we might be sure of our standing in him. And we ask this then for Jesus' sake. Amen.